Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about dreams. Now, everybody has them, but of course, different cultures, different religions, and indeed different movements within those religions have varying views over time about the meaning and significance of dreams. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about dreams and Islam, and how Muslims have understood dreaming in general, and interpreted specific dreams individually. According to a famous hadith, or saying of the Prophet Muhammad, the true dream constitutes one forty-sixth part of prophecy. But over the centuries, Various Muslim theorists and ordinary everyday Muslims debated about, well, what was a true dream? How to distinguish it from other kinds of dreams? And indeed, what would a true dream mean if it were interpreted correctly and indeed acted upon? In trying to understand the meaning then of dreams in general, their place within human life, and indeed the meanings of individual dreams, Muslim theorists drawn a wide range of sources, from the classical Greek theorist Artemidorus to the early Islamic dream interpreter Ibn Sarin to the medieval Iranian Muslim philosopher Suhrabadi and the famous Andalusian Sufi Ibn Arabi. To simplify matters, there were usually two issues under discussion. One were theories of dreaming in general. What was dreaming? Was dreaming significant? In what place within the universe, within consciousness, within cosmic knowledge, did dreaming take place? Were dreams, therefore, worth taking notice of? Or were they simply the response of the human mind to physical symptoms? Generally speaking, Muslim theorists came up with two key ideas that we'll be exploring. One was that dreams take place within an intermediate zone, which is called in Arabic the barzakh, a word that derives from the Quran. And this intermediate zone then lay between the physical world viewable by the senses and the completely invisible and ineffable world of divine unity or the divine essence. And in entering into this intermediate zone, human beings make use of the faculty of imagination. The Arabic word is khayal. And it's through the imagination or khayal as a means of knowledge then that at least the proponents of dream theory considered dreaming or at least true dreams to be a means of knowledge that took humans beyond the realms of material perception. So, so much in broad outline then for theories of dreaming. But there's also then the other branch of discussion over the many centuries, which is that of individual dream interpretation, which is called ta'bir in Arabic. And indeed, this wasn't just an issue of actually what an individual dream meant. Of course, though always in the social history of any religious group, it raised the question of who was qualified to interpret dreams and indeed on what criteria, on the basis of which knowledge, which theories, perhaps which textbooks or dream dictionaries, of which there are many written in different Islamic languages, on what criteria then would individual dreams be interpreted? By the 20th century, there's a whole range of sceptics in different Muslim societies who viewed dreams, dreaming traditions, theories of dreams, much more sceptically and critically. There are Muslim secularists, 
the Muslim reformists who view dream interpretation as a form of khodafat, as a form of superstition. And of course, after the translation of Sigmund Freud's writings into Arabic in the mid-20th century, there were also Muslim or indeed more broadly Arab or Middle Eastern Freudians and psychoanalysts and trained psychiatrists and psychiatrists more broadly who rejected older Islamic traditions of dreaming for Western-based psychological theories. Today, we'll be looking at a specific case study. We'll be turning to 21st century Egypt to see the different ways in which dreams have been understood, debated, criticised and valorised. Leading us through this discussion is Amira Mittermeier. She's a professor in the Department for the Study of Religion and the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto in Canada. And she's the author of Dreams That Matter, Egyptian Landscapes of the Imagination which was published by the University of California Press in 2010 and won the Clifford Geertz Prize from the American Academy of Religion. Hello, Amira. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Nile. It's good to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about dreams. Now, of course, everyone in the world presumably has dreams, but some cultures, societies and, of course, individuals talk about them more than others and some take them seriously in different ways, depending on what a dream is conceived to be. Is it something purely physical? Is it something psychological? Or indeed, is it something spiritual? These questions in terms of the location of the dream within, let's say, the individual person, the physical, the psychic, the spiritual person, beg further questions. Where does the dream belong, if anywhere, within the larger cosmos? Does it exist outside of the the human being or the human body? And if so, where exactly in the cosmos? And these questions among Muslims have been a major concern since the time of the Prophet. And indeed, in the Quran, through the earlier Muslim scriptures, of course, of the uh, what Christians and, and, and Jewish peoples called the, 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 uh, the, the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament, of course, dreams are part of the scriptural tradition of Islam both in the Quran beforehand and then in the life of Muhammad, as well as various classical period Muslim dream interpreters and theorists and philosophers who take dreaming very seriously. So to start us off in our conversation, we're going to move much more to recent times then in the late uh, 20th century and early 21st century Middle East, but looking back to give us some perspective, Amira, can you outline for us some of the classical Islamic theories of dreaming, and particularly the key concepts of the Barzakh and Khayal? Sure. Um, so first, uh, it's important to say that there are indeed extensive theories of, of dreaming in the Islamic tradition, um, and that dreams are a big deal in that tradition. Um, I would say that dreams hold a central place in the tradition, both as it is, you know, as a textual tradition and a tradition as it is lived. Um, and this really goes back to the beginning. It goes back to the Prophet Muhammad um, receiving the revelation of the Quran in the form of dreams at first. So um, from the very get-go, you have an intimate link between prophecy and dreams, or a particular kind of dream, at least. I'll come back to that. And importantly, it's not just the Prophet Muhammad's dreams that matter, but the Prophet himself is said to have asked his companions every morning what they had dreamed. And the Prophet himself is said to have noted that the dream is one of 46 parts of prophecy. So this is really important because it means that from the get-go, you have first this link between prophecy and the dream experience. And then secondly, this idea that not only prophets receive prophecy, right? Not only prophets can have prophetic experiences, but rather in a sense, technically anyone, because again, the dream itself offers access to the prophetic. Um, again, like I noted briefly, it's not that all dreams matter um, in the Islamic tradition, but that rather um, there's a distinction between three kinds of dreams. Um, in the classical tradition in dream manuals and also applied today in, in many contexts. And that's uh, between the, the, the holm, which is a dream that comes from the devil or the jinn and is usually a scary dream and is somewhat similar to what we would call a nightmare. 
And then secondly, the hadith, the so-called hadith nafsi, so literally talk of the self, um, which comes close to what we would think of as a dream in a kind of Freudian model, so the, the form of wish fulfillment, say. And then lastly, the most important category, the ru'ya, which is really, you know, the one that's at the heart of this, and that's the dream vision or a divinely sent dream and can also be a, a waking vision. So ru'ya can refer to both, actually. So already we can see, you know, how dreams open up to a whole field of interpretation, but also prior to that categorization. So which dream really comes from God? Which dream is just a form of um, wish fulfillment? Um, but to the extent that you accept the possibility of dream visions or ro'a, uh, the plural of ro'ya, um, these dreams are then seen as offering access to an elsewhere, to the divine, to um, offering up a form of knowledge also about the future. Again, a link to prophecy here. Um, and this is, as we can see, quite different from a kind of dominant psychoanalytic dream model that we usually resort to often, right? Such as Freud's classical model, where a dream is projected outwards from your unconscious, it's a product of the mind. In the Islamic tradition, um, dreams come to you, they're not produced by your mind in the same way, right? So this is reflected in language where people would say, it came to me in my dream, for instance, the prophet came to me in my dream, or they would say, I saw a vision, as opposed to saying, I dreamt of, right, when it comes to these significant dreams. So it's not the dreamer who's active, but it's more something that happens to you, something that comes to you. And underlying this is really this understanding of the imagination, the term that you introduced already, um, which is distinct from fantasy. So al-khayal would be the imagination, uh, fantasy would be wahm in Arabic. And so fantasy, the way I would distinguish them from my readings in the Islamic tradition is, you know, it's, it's, it's what gives you access to the unreal um, in the sense of you only imagined that it was only a dream, a kind of devaluation of what's imagined. Whereas the imagination of khayal gives you access to the real with a capital R, which is also the divine. Um, and so I think of the khayal as a kind of space between God and human, visible and invisible, spiritual and material, and at the same time, a mode of access to that space. Um, and so again, the imagination opens up a way of receiving knowledge. And the imagine in this case would be the real, not the unreal. Um, and if I can go for a second to one of my key interlocutors in Egypt, who um, explained Al-Khayal nicely, I believe. So this is Sheikh Salahuddin Al-Qusi. So I just want to quickly give, you know, put it in his words. So he would say, if you imagine a friend, you can bring him into presence, even if he's not here. You have to use your imagination. You have to imagine the prophet and the prophet's companions. You imagine what they were like and what it was like to live at that time. Then through your imagination, you make them real. They're around you. So these are his words. And there's a really important slippage in this, which is that you bring the prophet and the prophet's companions into existence by imagining them. But at the same time, in a spiritual sense, they're always already present. They're around you, as he says. So they're present and they're made present through the imagination. And this model of the imagination is what's so central to the dream vision, I would say. Um, and this takes me also to in-betweenness, which is linked to the other term that you mentioned, which is the barzakh. So again, imagination takes us into this realm between visible and invisible, human, divine, made and received, right? The dream is both made and received. And so this connects to the barzakh, which is um, usually understood as the space in which the souls of the dead dwell until judgment day. Um, and through dreams, you can enter this space, this in-between space, or in other narrations, the souls come to you from the Barzakh. In any case, the Barzakh becomes a meeting ground in through dream visions. And in, in thinking about dream visions and what they are and what they do and how people relate to them, I, I thought about, you know, I kind of resorted to a Barzakhian logic more broadly beyond the space of the dead in that the, the Barzakh as a concept draws us again into in-betweenness, right? It's beyond an either or. So you might want to, you might really, really, really want to see the Prophet Muhammad, 
and then you see the prophet Muhammad in a dream. So it is a form of wish fulfillment, yes, but it also is the prophet coming to visit you in a dream. So it's both end, right? And the Barasakh opens up into a both end for me so instead of an either or. And so this in-betweenness, this access to this in-betweenness is what makes dream vision so important uh, in the Islamic tradition in my, in my view. And at the same time, it's what makes dreams um, so ambiguous, right? And, and so contested because again, they're both, they might be produced by the dream and at the same time they come from God and that creates a lot of messiness, right? That is both unpacked in the textual tradition in certain ways and also unraveled in social life, in, in the social life of dreams in, in a place like Egypt. Well, that's so interesting, Amira. And you, 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 you've brought us to some really kind of key concepts that that distinguish the, the Islamic tradition of, of, of understanding dreams uh, and valuing dreams from what's become, I suppose, the dominant sort of Freud-based and broadly psychoanalytic model of dreams, as you say, of, of, of coming, being a product of, of, the, of the human self, being sort of inward, as it were, and, and projected outwards from, from the unconscious. And, and, and as you've explained to us, there's this key term then, khayal, we can translate as imagination, but but as you pointed out, this is imagination in a, in a positive sense. It's not fantasy or delusion, which would lead to well to del delusion, but imagination as a as a mode of knowledge and indeed a mode of of, of higher knowledge that, as you'd explained, you know, kind of takes the the person who sees one of these, uh, as it were, one, one of these. Uh, higher types of dream, not the, the, the dream sent by the devil or the, the jinn, the, the genies, the sort of um, spirits, another level of kind of, of creation, the hulm dreams, not the hadith nafsi, which would be, let's say, the equivalent to, let's say, the Freudian type dream, wishes, worries, maybe kind of, you know, kind of, I ate too much last night in digestion and so on. But this kind of ruya, as you've explained, the, the, the dream as a mode of knowledge that takes us, as you put it very, very nicely, potentially takes the human being to a vision through this imagination of, of reality with a big R. And that's really important because one of the, the, the names of, of, of God in Islamic tradition is Al-Haq, the real, the absolute reality. So it gives us this sense then that, that dreams, or at least this type of dream, the Ru'ya, is, is a form of knowledge. And is that epistemological Form of knowledge, form of dreams. Dreams as a mode of knowledge. Dreams as a mode of epistemology, which which drew in, of course, so many Islamic philosophers, Sufi theorists, theologians. But nonetheless, as ways of trying to explain and help people understand practice, because people are having dreams all the time. They need to distinguish what type of dreams, and then the practice then of a dream interpretation and how to act on them. And he brought up that other sort of element then, which I think is really important then, of, of dreams of, of the Prophet Muhammad. And, and there's another famous hadith that we use a saying of the Prophet, which you all know well, which is, uh, uh, which is when the Prophet says, whoever has seen me in a dream has truly seen me. So this idea then is taken to mean that the, the, the devil then can't take the form of the Prophet in the dream, which is to say, if someone has a dream of the, of the Prophet Muhammad, then they don't need to think, oh, was this one of these hulms? Was this one of these devilish dreams? But of course then, over time in different societies, of course, these dreams of prophets can be, have all kinds of social potential then of kind of giving a kind of authority then that is, well, maybe not the same as the prophet, but again, going back to the early Hadith, 146th part of prophecy mm -hmm. then. So this opens us up to the kinds of, social contextualization and debates over dreaming that you've studied in such a fascinating way in in your book on 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 modern egypt so so let's move towards modern egypt then and uh because what's really useful about dreams is that they take us beyond the the institutions and the media beyond let's say the mosques and madrasas the magazines and websites that that scholars or journalists usually focus on when trying to understand Islam in the modern world. So can you explain for us how dreams feature in the religious and indeed the social life of, 
ordinary, everyday Muslims living today in Egypt? Absolutely. Um, so I, this is exactly why I find dreams so exciting to think about because they take us beyond institutional structures, uh, they take us beyond official voices, and yet they are, as you said, a form of knowledge, right? So it's a form of knowledge that's kind of accessible to everyone, at least in theory. Um, so, so thinking about dreams takes us into Islam as it is lived, I would say, but also as it links up with the invisible. And um, to my mind, we tend to not pay enough attention to the invisible. We're a little bit biased against the invisible. So dreams draw the invisible into view both for the dreamer and for us. Um, so this is exactly what attracted me to dreams in the first place, that, that the, the dream's importance, like we said, comes out of the textual tradition. So from the Quran to, as you said, philosophical writings to early dream manuals and so on, but it unfolds in everyday life, right? The dream's importance unfolds in ordinary lives, including the lives of, of completely normal people, such as, an illiterate housewife who, who claims to have seen the prophet in a dream, right? And as you said, there's also that extra added value in that seeing the prophet um, is already given to be a ru'ya because the devil cannot take the prophet's form, it is said, based on a hadith. Um, so, so just to give an example, you know, part of my fieldwork was talking, um, so I, I worked a lot with dream interpreters and different sheikhs, and through them met a whole bunch of dreamers, but also just talked to ordinary people about their dreams. Um, so one of these ordinary people was a, a woman who was maybe 80 and uh, was living in a, in a really small apartment at the outskirts of Cairo, a very dark place, and there were cockroaches, and she was you know, kind of trying to deal with the cockroaches in her place. And in this dark place, and in this kind of, you know, struggling economically and in other ways, uh, from this location, she told me about how the prophet had come to her. And, and she described it, again, not as this thing that she imagined in this kind of derogatory, in this, you know, devalued sense, but rather as the prophet came to me. I saw him the way I'm seeing you now, you know, is how she would say this to me. So the prophet came to her in a dream and, a, and she told the prophet she wants to go on the pilgrimage. She hadn't been on the pilgrimage yet. Um, and the prophet said, don't worry, I've already come to you. You don't have to come to me. So this is just one little dream encounter, but I think we can see how significant this is, right? How significant this encounter is um, and its content. Um, and this woman, just to be safe, still went on a pilgrimage the following year to visit the prophet, which is also in line with the consensus among Muslim scholars that a dream cannot contradict um, basic religious tenets and obligations. But again, it's still very significant that she had this one-on-one -on -one conversation and that in theory, at least the prophet freed her of this obligation to make this tiring and expensive trip to, to Mecca and Medina. So again, there's something to me very significant about the possibility of a direct encounter with the prophet, which gets us around again, institutions. So if we think about how normally you would encounter the prophet, one you know, dominant way would be through the Hadith literature in which are collected sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, which then form a canon, and then you have experts and scholars who can judge, um, you know, which Hadith should be trusted and which maybe isn't as trustworthy. So there's a whole apparatus around this. And then against this, you have this woman in her apartment just meeting the Prophet directly. You don't need the Hadith, you don't need the scholars. So it's, there's something very, very powerful uh, about this. And because dreams open up these possibilities of encounter, of knowledge, and so on. I did find that they play uh, an important role for many people in their lives, that they have effects, that they offer directives in, in big and small matters. So for instance, um, when it comes to big life decisions, such as someone proposed to you and you're trying to decide whether this is a good person for you, one common practice is resorting to the istikhara prayer, which is a particular prayer that invites divine input, right? So you're basically saying, this is my choice. I don't know which way to go. And God, what do you think? Um, you know, give me a sign. And usually, at least in the kind of Egyptian religious context, the answer that God gives comes in the form of a dream. Um, so through the dream, again, you have a direct line to God and God can help you figure out, um, you know, 
making make, make a decision in, when it comes to difficult life decisions. Um, dreams are also a visitational space, right? I already talked about the Barza has this meeting ground. So dreams offer a connection to the dead, to the saints, Ahl al-Bayt, who are quite important in many forms of Egyptian religiosity. And again, these kinds of visitational dreams have real effects. Um, so you might see the dead in a dream and then might go visit the dead in the cemetery as a kind of visit and counter visit. Or you might dream of Saida Zainab, the prophet's granddaughter. Um, and then the following day, you might visit her. So you go to the shrine and visit, you know, again, repay the visit with a counter visit, but you normally would then also take food and distribute the food to the poor around the shrine. So again, these are very small examples, but they show that there's an interface between the visible and the invisible, that dreams, you know, this, this thing that happens at night that has no real materiality has a real material effect. Um, so I tend to think of dreams as opening up these, you know, fields of relationships, they offer a connection to the dead, they offer a connection to um, the Prophet Muhammad, this immediate connection, which again is very significant, they offer a connection to Ahl al-Bayt, the Prophet's saintly descendants, they offer a connection to God, a direct connection to God, and then also socially, they, they create relationships, right, they offer, they create a relationship to dream interpreters, people go and get their dreams interpreted, to sheikhs, you know, sometimes you go to religious authorities for help with interpreting or maybe to your grandmother who might be good at interpreting dreams, right? So they, again, they have social effects, ethical effects, material effects. They sometimes also have political effects, we could say, so, um, or they can become entangled with politics in interesting ways. Um, so at the time of my fieldwork, there was one rather small um, political party that many ridiculed, but it was still interesting. Uh, because it had been founded because of a dream. And the guy who founded it believed that all political decisions should be based on dreams or dream visions. So he would send letters to the then president Hosni Mubarak with his dream messages. Um, of course, he never got a response. And again, people thought this was, was, was a bit silly, but it's still interesting how he could you know, open up a space for, for uh, a platform, have a political party whose platform really is politics should be guided by dreams. Um, but also, if you if you look to the Egyptian uprising in 2011, um, a number of people in the, the Sufi communities I've been connected to talked about having already seen, foreseen, or dreamt of the uprising um, prior to it happening, right? So there's a, there's a kind of divine logic to history. Um, Tahrir itself as an experience was already dreamt beforehand. You also had people at the Tahrir sit-in, so the decisive kind of 18 days when people took over the square in Cairo. You had reports of dreams of the Prophet Muhammad coming to the square and shaking hands with the protesters and blessing them. And these dreams circulated, right? There's again a social life to these dreams and dreams get told and retold and there's, um, again, as a political significance to that. Um, dreams also figured in, in Muslim Brotherhood speeches, including at the Rabah Siddin. Um, and then interestingly, also at the other side, right? So, so in support of Sisi before he became president, there were also reports of dreams that basically offered a form of le legitimization, right? So this is, this is the, the divinely um, blessed kind of leader of, of Egypt. So they get played on both sides, they get used on both sides, but, but all of that just shows, I think, that there's um, a certain uh, weight to the dream, right? Also that they can be used and abused in these ways shows that there's a certain weight to the dream. Um, but beyond the political, again, I think what, what uh, interested me and what um, I found really striking is how in more ordinary contexts, dreams move people in their waking lives or through their waking lives, how they guide people through their waking lives, um, how um, they help people navigate lives um, and try to live a godly life, whatever that means to them. One uh, dream interpreter that I spoke to called dream interpretation a form of jihad. So here, not in the sense of war, but in the sense of 
again, a, 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 um, a struggle or an effort to help people live godly lives. So a, a tool of, for offering moral guidance, right? So both the dream as a sign that comes from God and dream interpretation as a kind of spiritual ethical act, both are about living um, a, good, a good life or a moral life or a godly life. And so again, in, in all of this, I think what's so important is the entanglement of lived lives and this divine realm, right? And they become entangled through the dream experience and then in how the dream is lived out and how it moves people in their, their waking lives. Thank you. That that that's so important, Tamara, isn't it? This 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 sense that you're giving us in manifold ways in which dreams, whether um, well, whether it's in providing moral guidance or, or indeed potentially even political or broader social guidance of how to behave in a, in in the world or a particular historical moment, a particular place and time, dreams are, 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 are closely linked to action. And that's tremendously important, isn't it? Because what we're kind of dealing with here, and I think there's, there's, it's, it, there's often, let's say, what many scholars have called, let's say, a Protestant understanding of Islam, which is, it's all about the Quran, you know, and, and, and various scholars as well, there, there are Muslim Protestants too, who would say, you know, if you want to find out, if you want to live your life as a Muslim, you merely look at the Quran, the scripture. But of course, what we're actually seeing here is, is this sense of not the dream being equivalent to the Quran. It goes back to the Hadith. Is it? It's a 46-part of prophecy, sort of a best your dream, you know, so it's not equivalent to the Quran. But nonetheless, these are forms of guidance from God that then the dream, because this isn't a conception of Islam as a deus abscondidus, of a God that created the world, then cleared off and maybe came back on judgment day. God is ever-present in human life and potentially giving guidance. So what we're seeing here then is is the way in which, as you said, that when ordinary people have dreams and they think, oh, maybe this is Uruya, a sort of a, a religious, a spiritual dream, a divinely inspired dream, many would then go to a dream interpreter or, or someone who may be a Sufi sheikh or another type of religious leader, Sufi or otherwise, and ask for dream interpretation. That being then, well, how should I act? How should I react? How should I act to this message from God, if such as it is. And that's part then of then, there's a sort of a coherence here, isn't it? Sort of morally, intellectually, theologically of a God who is ever present and of human life as a struggle, as you said, this, this, the word jihad literally meaning struggle, human life as the struggle to live a good life in accordance with the will of God. So there's a kind of an entire theological logic here. This isn't, let's say, somewhere in the realm of popular religion or folk religion. This is at once extremely popular practice in the sense that everybody has dreams, let's say, you know, have a, they do don't value them. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But of course, this is also the, the most intellectual, theological, philosophical, uh, and indeed kind of scriptural type of religiosity as well in being sort of embedded in stories in the Quran and the, 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 the pre-Quranic scriptures and indeed in, in, in Hadith as well. But as you mentioned, you know, kind of whether political or otherwise, the you know the different uh, the, the the stakes of, of of dreams, particularly dream of the prophet, the stakes can be pretty high, you know. So consequently, then and unsurprisingly, dreams because they they're so much at stake, they're given such value, at least potentially. Dreams have been a big subject of debate throughout Islamic history, and, and indeed still in the modern Middle East not least between proponents of traditional and certainly still very much ongoing and, and in some ways reviving Sufi Islam, between proponents of reformist Islam of various kinds, you mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood, and indeed of secularizing Middle Eastern proponents of Western psychotherapy or some adaptation thereof. But that said, it, it's, it's not as though those teachers and dream interpreters who uphold the religious value of dreams are all somehow traditional, still less old-fashioned. This is very much a, a living, modern practice as well. So to sort of navigate us through these debates, can you give us some examples of how dreams are understood by Sufi teachers on the one hand and by, let's say, television dream interpreters on the other? Sure. Um... 
I mean, first of all, just to reiterate, as you just said, dreams are an object of debate, right? So even though we've been talking about dream visions are a form of prophecy, they offer um, direct modes of guidance from God, nevertheless, they're heavily debated. Um, and um, that's, again, one of these things that makes dreams so interesting because they're highly valued and at the same time heavily contested, right? They're both at the heart of the Islamic tradition, I would argue, and at the same time, they've become marginal to the Islamic tradition. So there's something really interesting about the larger field around dreams. Um, and so um, one strand within Islam that has historically valued dreams more than others, one could say, is, is the world of Sufism, so the mystical tradition, if you wish. Um, and that has to do with um, the importance of experience to Sufism, of tasting the divine, right? The idea that you can't just get God or connect to God via the intellect, but you actually have to, to experientially connect. And so because dream visions offer this intimate connection to the divine, dream visions are important in, in uh, many Sufi communities. And then related to that, you, you generally in Sufi orders at least have a spiritual guide or a sheikh, right? And you need to establish that person's authority and also connected to that, again, modes of legitimation and, and authority, again, are often connected to dreams, right? Um, so one um, community that I worked with closely uh, is that around Sheikh Salah al-Din whom I mentioned briefly earlier. The community is called Ashraf al-Mahdiyya. Um, they don't really call themselves a Sufi community for complicated reasons, but they, they fall within that larger world of Sufi practice, I would say. And they, um, they're amazing dreamers. They have very actively cultivated the ability to receive dream visions to see beyond the visible, as they would say. So they have strengthened their basira, their, their inner vision, right? That's different than the optical vision. Um, they all, not all, but many of them see stuff, including waking visions, and they note their dreams down in, in a, you know, a collective text that I call the Book of Visions. And again, within that, many of the dreams that they see confirm the Sheikh's authority. So people would see the Sheikh being blessed by the Prophet Muhammad, for instance. But dreams also open up a kind of collective space of experience and a shared space within the Sufi community. So that um, sometimes people will have shared dreams. So you would have a meeting of the Sufi community and you would have two people coming to, you know, attending the meeting and one would start telling a dream and this person was in Cairo the last night and the other person came from a village in the Nile Delta and could complete the dream. So they would have or claim to have shared dream, be in the same dream space. Um, and they also sometimes had shared or collective waking visions, such as sitting together at a Ramadan gathering and then collectively seeing the Kaaba in their midst in Cairo, right? So things like that. Um, so in these kinds of Sufi communities that, have, that, that really embrace the potentials of dreaming and of seeing beyond the visible, again, dreams can open up um, a shared space of experience. They can ground the Sheikh's authority uh, and they can, in fact, form the very community. Um, but again, within that, what's interesting is this tension that on the one hand, all of these members can dream these kinds of dreams. And on the other hand, you have a sheikh who is the expert interpreter and um, who helps, you know, can mediate between the divine and this human world of imagination. Um, so you always have this tension between a direct link and a need for an interpreter and a guide when it comes to these dream worlds. Um, so again, within these Sufi worlds, dreams are especially valued and dreaming is cultivated in a certain way. But beyond Sufism, there's an interest in dreams. And one form that took um, at the time of my fieldwork were TV programs where uh, that were quite popular where, for instance, in one program, you would have a psychologist and a sheikh who actually came from an Asharite background, so was tied to kind of the authoritative institution of Sunni Islam, but did this on the side. And so the sheikh and the psychologist would be there as the two expert interpreters, and people would call in and tell their dreams. 
and then they would be directed to either, if it's Hadith Nafsi, right, it goes to the psychologist, and if it's a Ru'ya, um, then it goes to the Sheikh. Um, this program uh, was discontinued, this particular program, while I was in the field, because, again, dreams can be very unruly, like we said, right, because dreams, there was a particular dream that was told that um, Al-Azhar worried would lead to social unrest, again, back to the idea of dreams having real you know, political implications, dreams um, being tied to action, dreams being potentially unruly, not controllable by the institutions uh, and structures of authority. So Al-Azhar, the official voice of Sunni Islam at the time issued a decree saying, you shouldn't broadcast dreams and these kinds of metaphysical matters to the masses. Um, and this is in line, was in line and echoing the state's aversion at the time to what they called excessive forms of Sufism. So this whole kind of Sufi world and this valuing of the imagination, once you bring it to the so-called masses, becomes unruly, dangerous, potentially problematic. So again, all of this means that dreams uh, continuously are this vibrant field of debate, right? Who should, whose dreams should we pay attention to? Who can really see a dream vision? Even dreams of the Prophet Muhammad, which seemingly are not contestable, you know, critics would say, well, if, if you've seen the prophet in a dream, it was really the prophet, but how do you know you've really seen the prophet in a dream? You know, maybe it was just a figure you made up with your imagination. So even there's a space for contestation. But within this field of debate, um, dreams continue to matter. Again, like I said, especially in Sufi communities. And what's important to say, I think, is that these communities are not somehow sealed off from society and just concerned with, you know, kind of the spiritual world. They live their lives, you know, they, this community, the Sharfel Mahdiya, many of the members come from rather privileged class backgrounds, they're engineers and pharmacists and doctors. And again, they live their life, they live in the world, um, they go about their careers, but they also cultivate the spiritual receptiveness. So again, as you said, it's not just a matter of the illiterate housewife, in, you know, as a trope in quotation marks or a matter of, um, you know, uh, old-fashioned or kind of those following a popular form of Islam. Um, these are people who are uh, holding quite quite privileged social positions. Um, and it goes beyond Sufism too. I think that's important too. Again, the, the interpreter on television that I mentioned was an Asarite sheikh. So he was someone trying very hard to uphold the textual groundedness of dream interpretation. So the you know, the brief account we gave in the beginning about it's actually central to the Quran, the prophet himself said it's part of prophecy and so on. He would amplify that and say this is actually part of the tradition. It's not outside of the tradition. Um, and um, beyond, you know, this is this is the kind of 2003 was the main time of my fieldwork for this project. So this was a time when television was still big. Um, nobody really cares about TV anymore, but dreams have moved into other mass mediated spaces, right? You have um, cyber interpretations of dreams. One of the dream interpreters I've worked with also interpreted for a website. Um, and what I find is that different new forms of mass media not only have opened up new spaces for interpretation, but also new languages for talking about the dream experience, right? So I was very intrigued by how people would um, kind of draw on media metaphors to, or, or even, you know, technological, or speak of x-ray in relation to Basira, or speak of, one healer spoke about, kind of re revamped the classical account, which is that angels see what's written on the eternal tablet in heaven and then bring this to the dreamer and thereby we can have a glimpse of the future right and he kind of retold the story as the angels watching a movie in in, in heaven and then bringing the movie down to the dreamer right so there's a way in which media technologies not only open up new spaces for dream tellings and dream debate and dream interpretation but also create a new language for dream talk um, so all of that, I think, is to say that dreams are alive and well, and many people, you know, care about dreams and let dreams continue to move them and connect them. 
Um, and at the same time, it's a living tradition, right? It keeps shifting shape. So the way dreams are conceptualized, talked about, imagined, um, doesn't just go back to the Quran and the Hadith, but it actually is constantly reimagined and is also informed by the dream space itself, right? So the, especially in Sufi communities, there's a constant learning about the imagination through the imagination, a constant learning about the nature of the dream vision and what it is and what it can do by way of dreams that the community sees. Um, so this is, a, this is again, a, a vibrant, shifting, Im, continuously emerging tradition. <laughs> What you mentioned here of the the ways in which different different media whether television the internet or indeed in a sense the kind of the theological or, or indeed cosmic me media in between us uh mediators which are the angels of course which are sort of very crucial kind of you know part of uh, of, of of of, uh, of islamic tradition really i mean of the mediators between between god and indeed the prophet the quran being delivered through the mediation of of the angel Jibreel, Gabriel, or indeed ordinary people in dreams, but the types of, let's say, man-made media, let's say, kind of, you know, kind of human media, whether print, television, or the internet, of course, one can imagine how they become a big feature of, of debate and contestation, even, let's say, perhaps at a theological level, because so much of the language of, of Sufi Islam was of the language of the asrar, the language of secrets, and that this isn't for everyone. And indeed, the notion of a dream is sent to an individual, not necessarily to be, you know, kind of broadcast publicly. And, and these were issues that were faced, as you'll know well, in the 19th century, when many classical, later 19th century, classical Sufi texts, perhaps made for initiates or high initiates, or, or when a, a Sufi sheikh would say, okay, you're ready, you individually are ready to read this text and so on. Now anybody can buy them in print. And that, of course, gets just uh what's to say is the exponential sort of public access then through television and then through other sort of more digital media and i was really struck too by your example then of on the the tv program you were talking about that on the one hand we have a a sheikh from al-azhar so the the premier i mean in cairo the great egyptian uh sunni muslim seminary but in many ways the the, the premier Sunni seminary anywhere in the world, really, or at least perhaps until the rise of some more, more recent uh, seminaries in, in, in Saudi Arabia, but one might contest whether they themselves consider themselves Sunni in a tr traditional sense anyway. So we've got a kind of real figure of, as you mentioned, of the textual, the, the normative, in the perhaps the orthodox tradition. Of course, Sufi Islam is orthodox as well, and many Sufi sheikhs were members of Azhar too. But also, as you've mentioned, there's this kind of division of interpretive labor, so to speak, of, of the Al-Azhar Sheikh then, he interprets dreams that have been decided to be Uru'yah, the spiritual dreams. And we have a sort of a, a, an Egyptian psychoanalyst then using Freudian or post-Freudian psychotherapy to work on the dreams that are the Hadith Nafsi, the ones that are wishes, worries, etc. So it's not here that we're in some kind of space or environment that, that is refusing to accept, in inverted commas, modern psychotherapy or, and so on. But it's just that that, is, that has its place, um, which is for these, let's say, the dreams that Muslim dream interpreters, in many ways, drawing upon ancient Greek interpreters. The early translation into Arabic of the Greek manual of Artemidorus was, again, classifying dreams that are sent from the gods, <laughs> For Artemidorus or God Allah for, for the Arab Muslim translators of Artemidorus so indeed the, the ordinary kind of dreams caused by uh, I remember a, a joke from childhood I what, how does it go I I dreamt I ate a giant marshmallow and I woke up and my pillow was gone I mean it's a dreadful joke but uh, but nonetheless the dream of indigestion and so on you know that Artemidorus or indeed Muslim theorists have always recognized but perhaps now let's turn then not so much then to the to those who accept dreams, but the, they're more their skeptics and indeed their critics. So how are dreams and dream interpretation understood by Muslim reformists and indeed by medical, uh, biomedical psychoanalysts? Again, we're taking the example of, of, of contemporary Egypt. 
Um, yes, so, so I mean, let's first return to this basic tension that I've already laid out of this ambiguity, which is that, again, dreams are at the heart of Islam, I would say, because there's nothing more important than the possibility of divine messages, arguably. And that's the very beginning of Islam and at the core of Islam. Um, and at the same time, belief in, in, in dreams is dismissed by their superstition because what could be more dangerous than trusting your dreams, right? So again, the dream inherently is at the heart of the tradition and very ambiguously placed at the same time. So, um, so there is a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of critique. And um, I'm happy to say, say, say a few words about both reformists and psychoanalysts. But I want to say up front that I think it's also important that there's no clear line or no simple line to be drawn between those who embrace dreams and those who are skeptical, skeptical in that it's not that all Sufis believe in dreams, uh, end of story. And it's not that all Salafis or Islamists um, don't believe in dreams, end of story, right? I already mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood, um, at least in recent years, uh, actively uh, circulating, telling, circulating, using dream stories to legit legitimize um, their, their kind of political, um, their, their politics. Um, so if you go back to Ashraf Mahdiya for a second, that community that I mentioned, you know, I, I know that they're very invested in dreams, they work really hard at dreaming, they're really good at dreaming, but they still, there's still skepticism in that community, right? They still say, well, you need the right person to categorize to help categorize what really is a dream vision. They say you can't trust all your dreams. Um, they say also you have to be really careful not to publicize your dreams too widely, right? In line with what you mentioned, this kind of um, ethos of secrecy, right? They can easily be misunderstood. So there's care also in that community. Um, so even those who believe in the possibility of divinely sent dreams. Um, can be skeptical as to who can see such dreams and to what extent you should talk about them and what you should do with them. So that's, I think, important to see. Um, and even within the tradition, right, you have the space for skepticism built in because not all dreams contain prophecy. Not all dreams are divinely sent. So already from the get-go, I said earlier, from the get-go, the dream is tied to prophecy, but also from the get-go, there's the possibility that the dream was just a dream. So um, beyond that, I would say that dream visions are a sensitive topic um, for a number of reasons. One reason is that they come quite close to prophecy, if not revelation. And at the same time, of course, the prophet Muhammad is seen as the final messenger. So there's something quite tricky and unsettling about the possibility of people, ordinary, people in the 21st century claiming access to knowledge that comes from the divine. Um, second reason, I think, is that dreams can be quite unruly. Um, they can include directives about the future, um, including, as we said, some that might contain have political implications um, or, or can contain subversive messages, right? So the, the example I mentioned of this TV program being discontinued because it just became a little too unruly, all this dream talk. And then a third reason, and this was actually quite important to many people I spoke to, is that dream talk is tricky because it can make Muslims look irrational. So this is, um, again, even people who in Sufi communities who care a lot about dreams, were always worried about that. You know, what am I doing writing a book about dreams in Islam? And am I not just reaffirming this, this uh, trope of the irrational Muslim if I do so? Um, which really is a long-standing concern, right? If you think about the earlier reformists of the late 19th, early 20th century, like Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida, right? They, they, they were quite concerned to emphasize that Islam is about reason and irrational, to get rid of the superstitious stuff. Um, they, they both thought it's dangerous to be invested in dreams. Um, they would leave open the possibility of spiritual experiences also extraordinary spiritual experiences, even Rashid Rida spoke of them, but he would say you can't trust them. You might have these experiences, but you shouldn't trust them. Um, so in many ways, this, this concern to me is, a, is an ongoing response to 
um, the claims of modernity and of colonialism and uh, also of certain orientalist discourses that pitch Islam as inherently irrational, um, which is a, a trope that's still around in all kinds of ways. Um, and so for this reason, again, uh, already in the early 20th century, you have these reformist critics who say Islam is about reason. Um, we cannot know the unknown, right? The unknown, again, with a capital U as El Reb, this other realm that, that's connected to the divine. We cannot trust our dreams. Um, so dreams already through this reformist movement become kind of disregarded or become banished to the private realm maybe, um, but they cannot be the foundation for community, society, let alone politics. Um, so I find, um, I found at the time of my field work, many echoes of that concern, uh, again, of, you know, Islam, an emphasis on the rationality of Islam, a concern about what it does to link Islam and dreams and what people would make of that in a larger discursive world where, again, the, you know, Islam is, is uh, Muslims are um, repeatedly pitched as somehow irrational, right, or too, too emotional, or too invested in the imagination of whatever the version of that may be. Um, so you have, again, you have echoes of that, and you have echoes of that also in state discourse by Al-Azhar and so on. It's a constant attempt to contain, again, what I earlier called excessive Sufism. That's a, you know, kind of was a phrase used by the government at the time. So contain excessive Sufism, all this unruly stuff, all these, all these possibilities of prophecy that linger on into the present. This is all dangerous and unruly and problematic, containing that. Um, and then there's another, of course, group of quite vocal critics and skeptics in the Egyptian uh, dream world. And that's um, the, the whole world of psychoanalysis and psychoanalysts. So you have since the 1950s, then Freud was translated into Arabic and there were many Egyptian um, intellectuals were part of that project. Um, and psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis in Egypt today is mostly following this Freudian tradition and a little bit of Lacan. And so that, uh, you know, this, that world or that, that kind of dream theory that gets embraced in that world is quite skeptical of the religious dream models that I've been describing. So what to someone might be a visitational dream, again, the prophet came to me in my sleep, um, or is this understood as a form of divine inspiration or a form of guidance sent by God from a psychoanalytic context as it is practiced in Egypt predominantly um, becomes contained within this framework of the unconscious, right? You might think you saw the prophet, but it's really just a form of wish fulfillment. Um, and Freud himself, I find when I read Freud is actually far more complex and open and interesting and actually speaks about dreams as a as ultimately tied to the unknown uh, and was quite interested in things like telepathy so he's a kind of interesting figure in his dream book his interpretation of dreams is actually very um multi-layered i find but again egyptian psychoanalysts at least the ones that are more outspoken when it comes to to dreams uh, and participate in these debates about what what dreams are and how we should understand them um, overall are quite dismissive of the kinds of dream stories I've told, um, including, of course, this key dream of dreaming of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and they tend to dismiss religious dream interpreters as charlatans. Um, and again, bracket all of this under the category of superstition. But um, so as I would say, these are the two main voices of, of, of uh, criticism, right, that the reformists, rationalists, the psychoanalysts, but to just very quickly return to the theme of in-betweenness, what you see on the ground is also how this Freud stuff gets taken up and integrated into Islamic dream theories. So one of my interlocutors was Sheikh Nabil, who was the guardian of the shrine of Ibn Sirin. Ibn Sirin is the father of Muslim dream interpretation. He died in 728 and he's buried in Cairo and he wrote a famous dream manual. And Sheikh Nabil guarded the shrine and small shrine and would 
you know, smoke his shisha, his water pipe and drink tea. And people came and told their dreams he interpreted. And so Sheikh Nabil was very interesting because he actually had read Ibn Sirin and Ibn al-Arabi and other dream stuff, but he also read some Freud. And his view is that the unconscious is really the same as the barzakh, right? So the, what Freud calls the unconscious is this in-between space, is the barzakh, is the divine elsewhere. So no problem, I mean, if we can just bring them together and subsume Freud. So again, just to wrap it up, you know, unexpected afterlives of both Freud and the Islamic tradition of dream interpretation and the ways in which they can come together in a place like Egypt. You've given us this really rich sense then of the, the debates and the multi-layeredness then of the, the guardian of Ibn Sadin's tomb, the, the sort of the, the classical Muslim dream interpreter interpreting, sort of incorporating Freud in, and the notion of the unconscious then within Islamic terms and a kind of a, a revalorization then of the unconscious as, uh, as the, as the Badazakh then, as the intermediary space between uh, the physical world and the divine world. And that other key term we started out by discussing then was the notion of khayal, of imagination as, a, as something that's real and guiding, a mode of knowledge. So finally, uh, how does this concept help us in trying to understand Islam and Muslims more generally? That's a great question. Um, I would say that al-khayal um, reminds us that there are forms of Islam or modes of Islam that go beyond the text, right? the importance of texts, and also beyond observable practice. Um, so historically, I find much Islamic study scholarship has been quite text focused. And then as a corrective, among other things, you know, uh, through anthropology, there's been more and more attention to embodied practices. Um, but there's this other sphere, which is really the invisible, um, the experiential, this idea of being acted upon by the divine, which is quite different from self-cultivation, which has been a very dominant trope in the anthropology of Islam, or at least was for a while. Um, and the question of the divine more broadly, of God, you know, where's God in the life of Muslims? So I think Chayel as this intermediary realm, right? Um, uh, opens us up to these questions and draws our attention to aspects of Islam that texts and uh, observation won't give us access to. So I think Al-Khayal reminds us to pay more attention to the invisible. Again, it draws the invisible into view, just as a dream draws the invisible into view. Uh, it kind of, if we take it seriously, it can uh, push us to look beyond our own bias. Again, I think we tend to be a little bit too focused on the observable, observable that, that which we can observe is what is real. And in many ways, that's a quite materialist approach. I think that's still predominant. Um, so it forces us to think about the stuff that also we as researchers maybe can't see. Um, and it draws us into this world of experience, which doesn't mean that dreams are unmediated, right? So um, I think that's why, again, why dreams are interesting as this in between. Um, um, people claim to have immediate access to the prophet and the divine through dreams, but these dreams are also enabled by the tradition. So just as Freudian patients are said to have Freudian dreams, Sufis have Sufi dreams. So again, dreams are both made and invited and cultivated and grounded in the tradition and at the same time received and, and a gift from an elsewhere. And I think again, that tension is what makes the dream experience so, so interesting for thinking about God-human relations. Um, and lastly, I would just say that beyond, um, again, kind of being so concerned about proving that Islam is rational and is uh, committed to reason, which I understand where the project comes from. But beyond that, I think we can think about resource, resources from the Islamic tradition, like this vibrant tradition of dream interpretation that we talked about, to again, challenge our own biases, investments in a particular idea of the real and to, to draw, you know, to, to, to consider the, the, the theories of the imagination that come out of that tradition that are lived in the day-to-day, -day, which uh, I think can help us to think about the, you know, dreams and the imagination beyond religious contexts even. I found myself going back a lot to my 
earlier fieldwork on dreams and the imagination in 2011 during the Egyptian uprising in the Arab Spring, when people were talking about dreams a lot, dreaming of a better tomorrow, different tomorrow. You know, what can we learn from people who have really thought about and cultivated the imagination and have taken dreams and the imagination seriously? So I think there's a lot to be um, to be gained from really dwelling on El Khayal in those ways. Professor Amira Mittermeier, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you so much. Da 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 da